This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. And hey, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Thursday afternoon. Our number 403-974-TALK, 974-8255. I want to begin in this hour the conversation about an issue that I think for a while was, was flying under the radar, but is getting a lot more attention. And I think there's a lot more pushback against the government. Uh, very quietly, uh, the government's coal policy, I guess we call it, uh, was changed. Uh, and a, a big chunk of land uh, was opened up to uh, potential leases for open pit coal mining. And these are areas that have previously been off limits. Uh, areas uh, in the Rocky Mountains, the uh, eastern slopes of the Rockies. So is, is this land that needs to be protected? And does there need to be a bigger conversation here about balancing uh, the environment and development? So I think Albertans are pretty pro-development when it comes to natural resources. But I think we also understand and appreciate uh, the natural beauty that we're blessed with in this province and why it's so important to protect that. Someone is looking to add his voice to the conversation, and he brings with it a pretty prominent voice uh, as a, a storyteller, an artist. Uh, Corb Lund uh, posted a video uh, on social media the other day outlining his concerns about all of this. Uh, of course, he's a uh, veteran songwriter, artist, uh, sixth-generation uh, rancher from uh, southern Alberta, and joins us on the line. Uh, Gord, if you could put Corb on the line here, and I get some computer issues on my end. Uh, Corb Lund uh, joining us here this afternoon. Corb, you with us? Yeah, hi. Rob, there we go. Well, I appreciate you joining us here today. CorbLund.com, of course. Uh, talk a bit actually, about. I'm not actually a rancher myself, but my family does that stuff. Your family, <laughs> yeah, a, six generations. Time to have a cat. Yes. But yeah. Take your point. Um, but you're very much rooted in in rural Alberta, and that, that's a big part yeah. of the uh, your, your art and the stories you tell. And in fact, uh, I understand this was something uh, almost very specifically you you wrote about some years ago. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The family's been here since 1898 or something like that, raising cows. Yeah. So yeah, it's pretty important to me. And yeah, I don't know. There's a lot to this. The more I study it, I. I was brought, the the coal policy, Lahid's coal policy being rescinded was brought to my attention by um, some ranchers that live in the, in the foothills here. And I don't like to speak out about stuff very much, period. And when I do, I like to know what I'm talking about. So I spent a lot of time reading about this, and I took meetings with everybody I could find on all sides of it. And I, it just doesn't add up for me like, at all. Like, they're risking a huge amount of our resources possibly in our in our economy in terms of agricultural threats and tourism and tearing down the Rockies and possibly screwing up the water supply for very little. Like my understanding is all the almost all the leases that have been sold are sold to foreign companies who uh and the royalty of course is really tiny and negligible and that's what I'm hearing. And mm-hmm. uh there's gonna be some jobs and that's you know, I appreciate all that. I obviously we need jobs, but at what cost, right? 
Yeah. Let me give, give you a chance to address this, because I suppose any criticism of government policy is, is inherently political, and people might see this through the lens of, oh, here's someone from the entertainment industry uh, attacking the government, but I, I don't think this is meant to be political on, on your part. Address that if you could. Well, a couple of things. Yeah, I don't, I'm, politi- I'm political party neutral. I don't, I don't weigh in on stuff. I, I've been saying I care less about who rescinded the policy than who's going to restore it. So it's not political. And as far as the entertainment thing goes, I mean, this isn't Jane Fonda flying in from L.A. I live here, right? I've been exactly. here for six generations, and we have cattle, and we have land, and, and, and we're in the foothills, and this affects me directly. So why wouldn't I speak about it? That's kind of stupid, I think. Yeah, and I mean, I, think I, the, I, understand, yeah. I understand when people from other places come in and give you hell about your, your, uh, your well, how you yeah, business, people get their back up over that. But I live here. I, I was born here. And I I didn't move to Nashville. I didn't move to L.A. I choose to continue to live here, and my great grandfather's lived here and the whole bit. So yeah, I'm from well, here. And this, yeah, this is Albertans having a conversation about Alberta, and I, and I think you know, as I said at the outset, that that balance between development of natural resources and maintaining the environment, protecting. You know, our, our, our Rocky Mountains, certainly. I mean, that's that's a, an important conversation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I've, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to be conciliatory and polite and everything. I've had meetings with the energy and, and um, environment ministers and with Mr. Campbell, the head of the, the coal, uh, Canada Coal, is it? Coal Can- the Canadian Coal Association, rather. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nothing personal. They were polite, and we had a good chat. But I, I just am not hearing the answers that make sense. And I asked the same direct questions over and over. I said, first of all, I said, why is the coal policy being removed? And I heard a number of times I heard it's outdated, it's redundant, it doesn't do anything. And that the thing I heard the most is that nothing changed. Nothing will change. Nothing changed. Well, something has changed. And up until last June, for 45 years, that policy protected that area, which is 3.7 million acres of our best, prettiest country from coal, open pit coal mining. Like it was just, you just the policy said you can't do it. End of story. Full stop. Get out of here. Now they've sold a ton of coal leases up there, and they're already digging holes and making roads and making a mess up there, according to the ranchers. And so if nothing's changed, I, that's what's changed. Like the... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like I, I not, see a bit of a disconnect. To, if they're not planning to mine coal, then why are they selling leases and digging holes? Yeah. I mean, look, if the government wants to defend this, then so be it. But it's just, they haven't really, I mean, it, it's it's been so quiet. It, it, this wasn't really announced. This wasn't really publicized. So if this is no, no big deal or if it's, this is defensible, I mean, where where was the news conference to address this, right? Why, why are they shying away from questions? That seems strange to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I have a lot of uh, issue with the content of this change, but that's probably an equally important issue to me is, is people not knowing about it. I didn't know about it until December, and old Ian Tyson didn't know about it. I had to tell him about it, and my rancher buddies didn't know about it. Some of the guys that irrigate in southern Alberta are just becoming aware of it. So that's kind of why I got involved, because I think that, you know, if we have a big, wide, deep discussion on this, and, and the majority of Albertans think it's fine to take risks with selenium in the Old Man River and and, you know, strip mine the or open pit mine the, the foothills. If we think that as a, as a community and as a province that's a good idea, then I'll shut up. But I personally don't think it's a good idea, and I suspect most people won't. So my my role in this mostly is just to wake people up a little about about this because it does seem eerily eerily quiet. Yeah, 
And and it's yeah, and it's important too. And you're calling attention to an aspect of this that that maybe people don't don't make the connection on. It's not just about how beautiful or pristine you know the eastern slopes of the Rockies are, or the mountains themselves. That that this is potentially a water issue. You mentioned uh, the Old Man River. It's uh, massive, not just that, right? It's a massive massive water issue because yeah. it, it contained in this 3.7 million acres is uh, see how much Nova coal now. <laughs> Guitar guitar playing is more fun. Anyway, uh, yeah, contained in this area is the headwaters of the old man. You got the Red Deer River. You got the North Saskatchewan. So, number one, we're talking about a massive amount of drinking water for the cities, the rural areas, the towns, the First Nations communities. They weren't consulted, as far as I know, like on the whole. Uh, Not only the drinking water, and about the drinking water, almost always when you have coal mines, you get selenium in the groundwater. And. This is another question that I asked directly to Mr. Campbell, the head of the coal, Canadian Coal Association, and what I was told was that I was basically asked to trust new technology, and, and he said that we're doing great things, and they've been spending millions of dollars across the border in B.C., in the Elk Valley, to deal with selenium in the water, which is toxic to fish and animals and humans, and, and that's what he said, but, but they may be spending millions on it, but as far as I know, they haven't solved it, and... If you're asking Albertans to trust the coal companies and future cutting-edge technology, which may or may not show up, if, if, that, if, we're, tr- if we're to trust those things and if we're let down, the Old Man River is, is contaminated with selenium, that's just a ridiculous risk. I don't, I don't, I don't, it's a terrible bet. And, mm-hmm. you know, not only the drinking water, but, but the Old Man supplies irrigation water for a huge part of the southern Alberta farmers, which are a major part of our economy whenever the resource stuff is in a slump, right? Like the corn guys and the potato guys and the sugar beet guys, you know, it's a pretty big deal. What, what are you hearing from, from them or the ones you know? Because it, it doesn't sound like there was really much in the way of consultation. Is that, is that what you're hearing? Yeah. Most of them aren't aware of it. Me and my buddy are waking them up as best we can. I mean, some yeah. people, I'm, I'm sure some of them know about it, but I haven't heard much. I haven't heard much, which is disturbing, because you know I don't know if the McCain plant in Lethbridge or or the hostess outside Lethbridge or the left or the hostess plant or the Cavendish people. I don't know if they want selenium rumors in their potatoes, like speculating. But <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, it's just it's just, the risk is so high, and there's there's just so many things wrong with this. Like it's economy, right? I, I completely understand that, and I understand jobs, but jobs isn't a magic word that you can utter to to uh, justify anything like jobs have have to be balanced with the the other side of it which is the cost of you know potential environmental cleanup and and you know how this movie ends too like half the time resource companies they make all kinds of promises they come in they make a mess and they leave right or they go bankrupt or they restructure or whatever and then you go to the elected representatives and say what do we do and they say, well, that was the previous administration, and Alberta's left with potentially contaminated water and, and torn down mountains and a big, ugly hole in the ground and not a lot of money. And, you know, that's an old story. Well, yeah, we've got all kinds of abandoned and orphaned wells all across the province, I think, that, that attest to that risk. So this is obviously on a much bigger scale. What, yeah. what are you hoping people do at this point? I mean, obviously, you're not demanding, you know, that the government come meet with you, nope. <laughs> you know, nope. get your, your blessing on this. But I think, you know, just to call attention to this, that, that people can contact their MLAs, uh, what, what should happen next? What do you hope happen next here? Two things. What I've been told by people that are advising me on this are that 
people should call their MLA, call their MLA, call their MLA, call their MLA. Because apparently that rattles up the chain. So people start getting nervous about their writings and call the ministers, mm-hmm. call the premier. So call your MLA, email your MLA. Secondly, I would like to see the Lougheed coal policy uh, reinstated. And I would say that, I don't know, from my perspective, I, I understand what they're trying to do, I think. I mean, everybody wants the economy to improve, but there's nobility and honor in admitting you made a mistake. And I think what the government should do is say, folks, we misread this. We screwed up. We're going to, re- we're going to put the coal policy back. And I think people would respect him for that. I think admitting a, a misstep is a is a powerful thing to do. Yeah, I think so. It doesn't happen often, but uh, I think that <laughs> yeah, there's something to be said for it. Uh, well, yeah, and like I mean, uh, again, I mean, people can can I guess do their own research, come to their own conclusions. But step one is is awareness, and uh, I think yeah. that's why you know these conversations are important. Uh, Corb, thanks so much for making some time for us here today, and I guess we'll see what comes of this. But uh, yeah, again, appreciate you joining us here today. You thanks bet. Thanks, Rob. All right, take care. Yeah, but- that is Corb Lund, uh, award-winning uh, singer and songwriter, and has mentioned his family, to clarify, sixth-generation uh, ranchers from right here in Alberta, southern Alberta, to be exact. And so, you know, he's speaking out as, as an Albertan, as someone who comes from a ranching background, his concerns and concerns that he's hearing from others. It's not necessarily a condemnation of coal itself. It's this specific area and uh, the land that's been made available for lease uh, the kind of open coal pit mining that's going to occur and the potential implications of that. Has this all been thought through? Why hasn't the government been more upfront about this? Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Look, prior to last Wednesday, there was a lot of talk and debate around big tech, social media companies in particular, whether they have too much power, whether they're monopolies in some respects, and to what extent their decisions constitute censorship. Do we have free speech when it comes to a platform provided by a private company? Now, since last Wednesday, what happened at the U.S. Capitol, this has really accelerated this conversation. Twitter, Facebook, and some other platforms uh, have uh, suspended or blocked the uh, accounts of uh, U.S. President Donald Trump. And and that raises an interesting question, too. We know that governments can censor private industry. Can private industry censor the government? Seems like a weird question to ask, but we're kind of at that point. Uh, Twitter also moved to uh, eliminate a number of accounts that were uh, spreading the uh, so-called QAnon conspiracy theory. Now, for its part, Twitter's concerned that stuff on its platform might have incited what happened last Wednesday, might incite something further. So as a private company, do they have the right to police their own platform? And if people don't like it, I guess they can go elsewhere. But that raises another question, too. Is there sufficient competition? Now, there is the website Parler, which was set up as kind of a conservative alternative to Twitter. Uh, But that app has now been removed by Amazon, Apple, and Google. For its part, Amazon, and they presented this in court filings, uh, they are concerned about some of the violent content and the death threats uh, that were on Parler, and they wanted nothing to do with it. So do they have that right? A lot of questions when it comes to digital rights in the big tech era. So joining us uh, to talk more about some of these uh, important issues, uh, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Corinne McSherry, who is a legal director uh, with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF.org, and uh, they're very much uh, immersed in, in the world of uh, digital rights and uh, free speech online. Uh, Corinne, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. 
Thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, there, there's not a lot of uh, cut and dry black and white answers to all of these questions, is there? When it comes to what's censorship, what's free speech, what rights we have, what rights businesses have, what, what do you make of this this whole debate? First of all, your initial thoughts. Well, there are some things that are cut and dried, and I just want to lay them out there because there's some confusion um, online about it. So, yeah. as a practical matter, if it's not state action under U.S. law. Um, it's protected by the First Amendment, by which I mean that, you know, the companies like Twitter have every right protected by the First Amendment to make decisions about what content they want to host or not host. That's their that's their right. Um, so uh, the way I think about it is a little bit of a difference between public censorship and private censorship. So when the state, when the government censors you, that's a First Amendment problem. Um, when a private company censors you, um, takes you offline. That may not be a, a First Amendment problem, uh, exactly. Nonetheless, I think in terms of people's actual experience of it, it's not that different, which is why you see yeah. a lot of confusion online and a lot of frustration. And I think something in your introductory remarks that's really important is really calling attention to the competition piece of this, which I don't think is getting enough attention. So, you know, if Twitter blocks someone's account, it's not such a big deal as long as there's somewhere else they can go to get to, you know, share their thoughts. Now, of course, we have, um, you don't have a ton of alternatives, but you need to have some. Um, there's a problem, though, when you have a few networks like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, that are enormously powerful online and shape so much online speech um, because their decisions, even if they are protected by the First Amendment, are nonetheless going to have huge consequences for online speech. And so I worry a lot. I, worry, I would worry a lot less about Facebook's decisions, about Twitter's decisions, if I was comfortable that there were large, powerful alternatives out there. But unfortunately, yeah. right now, there aren't. Well, and how do we quantify that? Because, you know, maybe, maybe at essence, Twitter and Facebook are websites. There's a, a zillion websites out there, but obviously they're much different, right? They're, they're not just websites. I mean, how, how do we quantify what they are and then by extension measure to what extent there's competition? So I think a thing you can look at, look at is, you know, their users. Um, mm -hmm. Twitter has millions of users. Facebook has billions. Um, billions of users. And so that's one thing you can look at. Another thing that you can look at is what structures have the, they put in place to make it hard for comp competitors to emerge at all? So Facebook, for example, has a long track record of gobbling up any potential com competitors in their infancy. And so those, those other services just never really emerge at all. So I and I know I mean it's it's a slippery slope in a way to have government intervention, um, but that that often happens when you know it's established that monopolies exist. That for the sake of competition, maybe we need that that sort of dramatic intervention. W would that apply here? To what extent can can we foster competition? Well, that's actually precisely the point. Like the government can't and should not. I want to be clear: intervene to regulate speech. I think there's a thousand ways in which that would be, first of all, illegal and also dangerous um, for everybody. So we don't want that. But the government can intervene to foster competition. So right now we're already seeing in the U.S. we're seeing um, legal challenges, antitrust investigations into Google and Facebook, and that's appropriate. Um, 
And then the other thing that that government can do is think about ways in which it can be supporting um, competitors and helping them exist. And so, for example, adopting policies um, that support competitors, um, thinking about ways to you know clear the path, thinking about ways to, for example, to also get rid of laws that inhibit competition, which unfortunately we have far too many of. In terms of liability, and I, yeah. Oh, we need to get rid of. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Well, and uh, yeah, and I mean, I want to ask a question about liability because I mean that's come up in all of this. Twitter's worried about whether they're liable for, uh, you know, insightful speech. Uh, there's concern about what what was on Parler and why these other companies moved to to take down the app. And I know there's a lot of debate in your country about uh, what's known as Section 230, I think, which protects these companies to some extent from that liability, but. Uh, how much of an issue is that? Um, how much do we expect these companies to clean up their platforms? And you mentioned it earlier. I mean, obviously, they have their own internal leeway in terms of how much they're prepared to tolerate. But, I mean, that that becomes a factor, doesn't it? Well, I think that, you know, the reality is under U.S. law, for the most part, they're not liable for what their users post. And right. that's actually a good thing, um, contrary to some popular beliefs. Um, because what Section 230, though, does do is it creates a space so that they can curate, but they don't have to. Um, and we need that actually for competition purposes. And the reason is, let's say you want to be an alternative to Facebook or you want to be an alternative to Twitter. Well, what, one of the things you're going to need to do is make sure you don't drown in litigation before you even you know, manage to get your site up and running. Um, and and if, you're, if you have to pay all your money to lawyers to defend against potential defamation claims, for example, yeah. um, you're never going to get off the ground, right? So Section 230, those protections actually end up fostering competition in a really important way. But the thing that we saw uh, this week that was particular, that, that's a different twist on that, is when you had a website um, called Parler that was trying to provide a competitive alternative to Twitter. Um, we had them taken down because the, the infrastructure companies that they relied on basically took them offline. And that's a new level, uh, that's a, a relatively new twist and a even more dangerous one. Well, it adds another dimension to it, right? Because Twitter didn't do anything to Parler, but obviously right. Apple did and Google did and Amazon did. Uh, I mean, and that, yep. that's, that's how much things have changed because you could still go to Parler.com, but of course people use these on mobile devices. So these basically these stores that provide them, uh, they become crucial in all of this. Right. That's exactly right. And I think the, the danger here is that a lot of those sort of infrastructure companies you know, they have very little relationship to sort of the ultimate speech. They're kind of behind the scenes. And my view is that they should be they should be basically Switzerland, you know, just providing, you know, basic infrastructure services and not making choices about what speech is or is not okay. And the way you might think about it is that, you know, probably you don't want the phone company making a decision about who you get to call and what you get right. to say on your phone call, right? Yeah. You don't want your ISP... Um, that you rely on for fundamental internet access, making decisions about what you can do with that access. I think many people would recognize that that is really dangerous. This is not that different. Well, some important issues uh, for sure. We'll see how it all plays out in the months ahead. Much more at EFF.org. Corinne, thanks so much for joining us here. Appreciate your insight on all this. Thank you. Take care.
All right, you as well. Uh, Corinne McSherry is uh, with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, their legal director. Uh, and she's got a couple of interesting uh, pieces up this week that she's written about these issues. You can find them at EFF.org. So it, it's it's unlike anything I think we've we've dealt with in the past, certainly in the pre-internet era. So who can censor? I mean, governments can censor, obviously. But can private companies censor? Can a private company censor the government? And, and it's... It seems illogical, but I think that's the accusation here as it applies to Donald Trump and his uh, Twitter account or Facebook account. So what do we expect from these companies? What do they expect from us? All right, welcome back. Well, we mentioned this earlier, as we've now passed uh, two years of captivity uh, in China for uh, the two Michaels, Canadians, uh, Michael Kovring and Michael Spavor. Uh, we've learned uh, that, that there was a deal reached uh, to try to uh, allow the two Michaels uh, a little bit more in terms of uh, access to their families. Uh, story here from Global News Today. Canada has obtained agreements in recent months that have allowed for increased family and consular access for two Canadians detained in China. But to date, the government has only shared that uh, the two Michaels have been allowed consular access without ever mentioning family. So what's unclear to what extent they've been able to communicate with their families. They were cut off entirely uh, before. So whether this is letters or even a phone call, I mean, that, that would be something. But here's what appears to be the other side of that deal. This isn't really uh, much of a, a fair deal by any stretch, uh, because Meng Wanzhou, uh, the CFO of Huawei, uh, who remains under house arrest at her uh, very luxurious uh, Vancouver home, she battles extradition to the United States. She's had some increased family access, not letters or phone calls, but a travel exemption to allow her husband and two children to come to Canada from China uh, and to stay with her. And as far as we know, they are still doing so. So once again, I mean, it just illustrates the dramatic difference uh, between the plight uh, of the two Michaels and the plight of Meng Wanzhou. And uh, I, I think Canadians are right to be outraged. So what does it tell us about uh, the status of the two Michaels? Are we any closer to any kind of a resolution on the case? And, of course, this speaks to our overall approach to, to dealing with China and uh, whether we've been had once again. Charles Burton joins us this afternoon, a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute in Ottawa, also a non-resident senior fellow with the European Values Center for Security Policy in Prague, and a former professor of political science at Brock University, also previously served in Canada's embassy in Beijing. Professor Burton, great to have you with us here today. Welcome back to the program. Good afternoon, Ron. Uh, this seems like a pretty bad deal. I think pretty outrageous that uh, Meng Wanzhou's family would be allowed to visit here. And, you know, we're, we're barely getting any crumbs for the, the, the two Michaels on the other side. What did you make of that? Well, I'm not sure that there's actually even any connection. You know, Meng Wanzhou's uh, husband came in October, and then the rest of her family came in December. And this, of course, uh, required a special exemption because her right. family members are not um, uh, Canadian citizens or permanent residents. And Ms. Mung's permanent residency in Canada expired in 2009. So there's really no justification for allowing the Mung family to get together over Christmas when so many Canadian families who are separated, um, you know, who are not... Uh, yeah. Meng Wanzhou are 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 not allowed to to um, reunite for a long period. You know, it's 
it's uh, well, frankly, I'm at a loss as to why the government decided to give that special consideration to her family. I think the um, we understand that there was one brief telephone call allowed for Michael Kovrick to speak to his family and for Michael Saver to speak to his family in Calgary. Um, I'm not sure that it was a quid pro quo for this um, granting of the visa to Mung's family. You may recall that there was uh, quite a major international campaign to send Christmas cards to Chinese embassies around the world, asking them to convey those cards to Kovrick and Saver. And that may have been uh, more what the Chinese government was responding to, you know, enormous public outcry outside of the realm of higher-level politics of ordinary Canadians um, expressing their concern over China's inhumane treatment of Kovrick's favor. So, you know, they gave this minor concession. We don't know how long the duration of the call was, mm-hmm. and there doesn't seem to be any improvement in consular access. Ambassador Barton has, is, has not been able to see them physically, but is able to communicate with them uh, through a video link just over the past couple of months. And there's certainly no indication that, um, you know, that visas have been given to the Kovrick and Favor families to visit China and see their, their incarcerated relative um, the way that we generously allowed uh, Ms. Meng's family to come here in violation of uh, the pandemic restrictions that have been imposed by the government of Canada. Well, and, and it, yeah, I mean, if this wasn't part of a, any kind of quid pro quo, and, and you're right, maybe it wasn't. So, I mean, what, what possible justification could there be? Well, I think it's a sign of the, you know, the senior levels of our government not wanting to do anything that offends the, um, you know, the Chinese communist nobility. And, you know, we know that there are a lot of Canadians, um, influential Canadians, who are benefiting from um uh, the Chinese state through board memberships and um, other associations. Um, you know, quite a number of former cabinet ministers and and senior civil servants would fall into that category. And one can't help but think that they make these concessions to the Chinese regime, hoping that there may be something in return for them after retirement. You know, that it's just it's a circumstantial connection, but there's just so much of it going on, and the Chinese regime seems to have so much influence in the senior levels in Ottawa that one can't help but, but smell something uh, not right about this. And, and this, yeah. you know, clearly this was done in a way that they hoped would not be noticed by the Canadian public uh, because obviously, you know, you, me, and pretty much everybody listening to this program thinks that this is ridiculous and an outrage against Kovrigan's favor to treat them so generously. And then when they got here, when her family got here, they violated the um, the quarantine regulations and have consistently violated quarantine by by uh, gatherings of people outside of bubbles in um, in restaurants in Vancouver. So you know they they're um, they're really playing us for fools on this one. And and I I regret that uh, our government is not a bit more clear-minded about this kind of thing. It's unfortunate because it, it certainly in no way advances Canadian interests. It certainly in no way uh, helps uh, move things along with regard to the two Michaels. Uh, and if anything, I mean it it just it 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 suggests to china doesn't it that what they're doing is working their approach to dealing with canada is working uh so doesn't it just reinforce the kind of behavior we've been dealing with in recent years no it shows we have absolutely no backbone and um you know that they can walk all over us and it emboldens china to to do more of this kind of thing if it's not hostage diplomacy it's um 
barring the export of canola seeds to China, you know, causing $3 billion of damage to our prairie farmers. So, you know, until until we see a, a change in in China policy, um, expect uh, more of this sort of thing. And on top of that, of course, Ms. Meng is now uh, requesting of the court that um, that her bail conditions be loosened and that she not be required to have um, people uh, um, monitoring her when she goes out in the day. I mean, if we go for that one, um, you know, expect her to be leaving our country in a hurry as soon as uh, as soon as uh, the monitors aren't uh, aren't aren't um, on top of her um, 24/7. You know, and I mean, that's the thing. Look, if we're scared to say no to, to Meng Wanzhou's request to allow her family to come, I mean, what are the odds that, that we're going to take, uh, you know, a much more principled stand when it comes to human rights in China, the situation in Hong Kong, or the situation uh, with the Uyghur minority? Um, there's some big issues that we need to confront. And um, look, I mean, there's there's optimism that a new American president is perhaps going to be more willing to work with allies on these issues. But if we're not prepared to do our part, it's all kind of a moot point, isn't it? Well, you know, the Chinese want us to pretend it's business as usual and forget about Hong Kong and the uh, Uyghur genocide and um, all the other things they've been doing. I, I received a notification from uh, the Ministry of uh, Global Affairs suggesting that I should promote the Canada-China Students Exchange Program with China this year, application deadline coming up. And so, you know, we're continuing to engage in student exchanges and sending Canadian students uh, to China and receiving Chinese students on a government-to-government program, uh, you know, what kind of a signal are we sending out there? I, I, I frankly wouldn't uh, wouldn't want any of my students traveling into China this time because I, I just don't think that we we can trust that regime to to treat them, um, you know, in accordance with normal um, international diplomacy and other protocols. You were part of an event earlier today, which featured a, a lot of notable speakers on uh, a way forward, uh, you know, defending human rights in China. What, what do you see as the way forward here, ideally? Well, I think that it's time for us to seek giving tacit consent to the Chinese regime for these things. And the way, the only way that's going to happen is if we can mobilize public opinion to make it clear to our political leaders that, you know, we will not support political parties that are in bed with the Chinese communists, that it just isn't consistent with our Canadian way. So we did have some very distinguished uh, people, including the former liberal minister of justice, Erwin Kotler, who is a highly respected uh, figure, who, who spoke out strongly on behalf of the Magnitsky legislation to sanction Chinese communist officials who are complicit in uh, in human rights violations and many other things, plus representatives of the incoming Biden administration and the uh, and the government of Great Britain, in a hope that we can cooperate with our like-minded colleagues to send out a consistent um, signal to the Chinese regime that that these uh, flouting of the of the basic, um, you know, principles of fairness and reciprocity in international relations is no longer going to be accepted by us. And if they're going to engage in hostage diplomacy, they're going to have to suffer the consequences, and we should make consequences for them in in coordination with, uh, with our allies so the Chinese can't, you know, play one off against the other. Well, let people know they can watch the event in its entirety. The video is posted at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Uh, Charles, we'll leave it there. Uh, again, thanks for joining us here today. I always appreciate the insight on this stuff. Great to speak with you. Take care.
Likewise. All the best. Uh, Charles Burton, uh, Senior Fellow of the McDonald Laurier Institute, uh, Professor Brock University, uh, former diplomat in the uh, Canadian Embassy in Beijing, moderated this uh, conversation earlier today about the way forward. And also some thoughts from him on this uh, Meng Wanzhou situation. Pretty outrageous, no matter how you slice it. And uh, who made the decision or why? I think Canadians uh, rightly deserve some answers here. All right, here we go. Welcome to this hour. Rob Breckenridge with you here, 403-974-8255. Later in this hour, we'll delve uh, deep into this uh, pool here, all these issues around big tech, social media, digital rights, censorship, freedom, all of that. Uh, we're going to hear from the Electronic Frontier Foundation coming up after 1.30, and a lot more to get to on the program here this afternoon. Uh, so we talked about this week. I mean, there's some growing uh, frustration, I guess, with the uh, state of affairs in Alberta vis-a-vis the public health restrictions that remain in place, uh, just how much longer they're going to be in place. What's the threshold for lifting them? What's the threshold down the road for reimposing them? And uh, do we need something a little more sustainable here? Look, I think for the most part, people understand and appreciate that, um, you know, we need to respond to this pandemic. We need to try to keep this pandemic in check. And, uh, you know, if things get out of hand, that's bad for everybody. But if businesses are, are going to have to take a hit in those efforts, it's pretty reasonable that, that they would have these kinds of questions. That how long is this going to last? Uh, when are we going to get out of this? What kind of certainty do we have going forward? So we've talked a bit about it from the perspective of the hair salons and tattoo parlors and some of these uh, businesses this week. But the hospitality industry uh, wants a voice in this conversation, too. They've released uh, an open letter to the province uh, today. Uh, calling for some changes in, in terms of the restrictions that they're having to deal with and some certainty going forward as to what it's going to mean for the industry because it's been a rough couple of months for sure. Joining us uh, to talk more about all this, very pleased to welcome to the program, uh, Ernie Sue, who is uh, president of the Alberta Hospitality Association, also owner of uh, Trolley 5 Community Brew Pub here in Calgary. Ernie, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so what about the timing of this letter? What, what prompted this uh, on, on your part? Well, what is, what's, what's prompted this, the trigger of this letter is, is the mass decrease of the men, like increase, I apologize, of the mental health issues that are now really taking place in our industry and quite frankly are not being talked about. Uh, but in terms of the timing, I mean, did, did you kind of deliberately wait until the 11th of January? Because I know that was sort of circled as a date to at least revisit the, the state of, of things and whether these restrictions might be lifted. And it was kind of that, you know, the fact that those restrictions remained in place as of January 11th, did that uh, to some extent prompt this? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, we're, we're dealing with frustrated um, restaurant owners all the way across the province. You know, by no means we want to see more unemployment and we want to make sure that you know public safety is number one but if the sentences were supposed to be all in this together then seeing other sectors open while 47 percent of cases are not traceable right now uh, by this government is now getting to to a point of being unacceptable well, and I mean, you know, in, in fairness, I mean, obviously, some of these businesses are shut down altogether, um, you know, hair salons, uh, fitness centers, etc. And I guess to some extent, restaurants are open, obviously, with some some pretty heavy restrictions. But is that, I mean, is that a meaningful distinction? Or how do you see it? No, restaurants aren't open. Restaurants have been termed to only do uh, delivery and curbside. And uh, right. 
uh, right now, I mean, that is a fraction, a small fraction of the revenues that a restaurant, you know, lives off of. Um, we also have to identify, you know, when we look at hair salons and restaurants and, and the fitness studios, for that example, if you look at the amount of money that has been invested in PPE to make sure the public feels safe uh, compared to the other industries and sectors that are open right now, um, that's massive frustration as well. Uh, you know, especially if we look over the Christmas season and how, you know, quite frankly, the malls were operated. Um, restaurants are underneath the magnifying glass of Alberta Health. And uh, we've, we've, you know, complied with every one of their requests, yet um, it's a different standard in, in different sectors that are still open, quite frankly. Uh, so there are three asks of the government here in this letter. What, what does the government need to do right now? The government needs to, um, number one, is give us certainty as to, you know, and especially on the mental health side, and not just the restaurant owners. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of staff that are laid off across this province um, that are wondering when they can come back to work and start getting a paycheck to, um, you know, to pay bills and, and quite frank, frankly, to just live. So, you know, the certainty and more importantly, the game plan just does not seem to be there from the government. Now, you know, the explanation to, uh, you know, our sector as well as the other sectors that are closed down is public safety, which is our number one focus. We want to make sure that that we're a part of the solution, not the problem. But, you know, 47% of cases have still not been traceable while we've been closed. Then you have to step forward and say these other sectors might be an issue. So what, what kind of conditions do you think should be in place? The, the letter says reopen dine-in with strong risk mitigation measures in place. What, what, are, what are some of those? Well, you know, for all the restaurants across the province, we just want to get open again. So if it's, if it's with the restrictions that were left off, which is um, same cohorts can only dine, I mean, that still knocks us down to about 20% of capacity. But... At the end of the day, the rest, you know, restaurants that are closed, it's hard to be closed, see the cases um, still where they are at while other sectors are open. It's not an even playing field. We want to be supporting the government and we want to be in this together like lockdown number one, but we truly are not. And that's where the frustrations and the anxiety is right now. Right. What about, though, I mean, you know, the nature of indoor dining and I guess, um, you know, the Number one, obviously, the, the not wearing of masks. You can mandate masks in retail outlets. You can mandate masks in, in a hair salon. Um, it's difficult to do in a restaurant, obviously, given the nature of that. So how do we address whatever risk might, might come along with indoor dining? Well, no, let's, let's, the masks were mandated in all restaurants. You, you know, you have to wear a mask entering a restaurant or if you're moving throughout a restaurant. Uh, when you're at the, the table with your same family or cohort, you can take the mask off right? Um, so masks are mandated inside um, restaurants. And let's not forget, prior to the closure, Chief Medical Officer Hinshaw, as well as Premier Kenny, stated it's safer to be going out and, and dining inside a restaurant where all of the Alberta health restrictions are in place um, than to be having these home gatherings and, and so forth. Uh, you know, restaurants have invested in plexiglass, keeping tables six feet apart, abiding by, you know, all of the standards and over and above by the Alberta government uh, and now are, are, are closed. And this is after both the Premier and the Chief Medical Officer stated that restaurants have, have done their job, if in fact gone over and above. 
Yeah, as you say, I mean, there have been issues with contact tracing. I think it would be helpful and maybe even helpful for hospitality if we had, um, you know, a workable tracing app. And I know there's been a lot of contention over that. What do you make of the idea of, of uh, restaurants and bars, uh, you know, keeping a, a list of names and numbers of, of customers? Is that realistic to, to put the onus on businesses that way? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's proving to work in, in British Columbia right now. Um, mm-hmm. And quite frankly, at this point, uh, restaurants and, and, you know, your local pubs are willing to do whatever it takes to, right. uh, to try to get the doors open and get some revenues rolling while keeping the public as safe as possible. Now, and, and this might seem like a silly question, but, you know, just to be clear, because I, I know there's, there's, there's issues, obviously, with only being at 10% capacity or 20% capacity, but would that at least be an improvement over the status quo? Well, you know, when talking to a lot of restaurateurs across the province, they, again, they just need to get open. They need to get open and get some revenues uh, rolling back into their businesses. <laughs> More importantly, from our staff's mental health standpoint, um, you know, a, a large part of our staff live alone. So, um, and we're starting to see that way very, very heavy here in the last few weeks. Now, we might be a week away from some easing of restrictions. I mean, January 21st is another date that's kind of encircled on the calendar, but we still don't know, do we? And it gets back to the point you made about let's have some certainty here, at least some clarification in terms of what's guiding the province for lifting these restrictions, guiding the province, you know, as we go forward in terms of whether there might be something imposed in the future. I guess we, we don't really have that, do we? No, and that and that's been the largest issue. There's There's really been no game plan for um the sectors that are are closed it's always that moving target of well we we need cases to come down which is which we're fully in support of but when 47 percent of the cases are not traceable while these sectors have been closed then what's the government's explanation for that and they don't have one which is extremely frustrating well, the Premier did suggest uh, recently when he addressed all of this that at least, you know, w- there would be some heads up, some notification for businesses. So, I mean, if we haven't heard anything at this point, does that maybe not bode well for a positive decision next week? Or, or what do you read into that? Yeah, I mean, our reading into it right now would be that this this lockdown is going to be extended. Um, and if if that's what it takes for public safety, absolutely. But um, again, it's it's not an even playing field in terms of the explanation as to why some sectors are open while others are closed, especially on the side of the fact that the sectors that are closed right now have invested far more uh, hours and money into the PPE as well as, um, you know, safety precautions for the public. Yeah. Well, much more uh, on all this, albertahospitalityassociation.ca, and uh, I guess we'll see what happens here, Ernie, but appreciate you making some time for us here today. No, and thank you so much for taking the time as well. All right, take care. Uh, that is uh, Ernie Sue. He's uh, the president of the Alberta Hospitality Association, so happens to uh, own the Trolley 5 Brew Pub. And look, I, I think they make some valid points here in terms of double standards and you know and i mean you, you've seen that frustration elsewhere too especially in jurisdictions where outdoor dining through these months was a little more realistic you know to say to restaurants look we want you to invest in in all of this invest in uh, plexiglass invest in outdoor heaters make all of these changes and then to turn around and say well it's not safe for you to be open 
Well, I mean, if they're going to get shut down anyway, then what was the point of, of going through all of that? So I can understand their frustration. And look, if at some point, you know, things are bad enough that you have to look at um, closing gyms or closing indoor dining, then okay, do that. But, you know, make it clear to everybody, this is what is guiding us. This is the threshold here. And so if we get to this point, that's what's going to happen. And if we can get to this point, then we can lift all of these things. So there is still some uncertainty in terms of what, what the triggers are here, both in terms of imposing or lifting restrictions. So again, I, I get that frustration. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.